0: like any other hobby, is affected by things like technology and just changes in the craft. People have taken this hobby and brought it to entirely new levels. And so this week, I'm going to do a deep dive, and we're going to talk about the evolution of modern homebrewing this week on Homebrewing DIY. welcome back to homebrewing diy the podcast that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing gadgets contraptions and parts the show covers it all on this week's show we're going to do a deep dive episode where we're going to talk about the evolution into what modern homebrewing looks like today so we'll take a look at back when i brewed my first batch in the 90s and probably what homebrewing looked like a little bit before that and see how the evolution to 2021 has really just changed the hobby over time so kind of exciting to jump into this week's episode but first i'd like to thank all of our patrons over at patreon it's because of you that the show can come to you week after week head on over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing diy i have a lot of patrons to thank this week so let's dive into it first i'd like to thank eric i for becoming a new patron i'd also like to thank brandon for your support nicholas Rolly. thank you once again for your support and then all the way back on the 5th of march chris george thank you so much for your support the these ongoing supporters are what keeps this show coming to you week after week uh just a couple of notes on Patreon. I did drop the price from $3 to $1 a month. So pretty much, the cost of a, a cup of gas station coffee you could go ad free not have to be listening to any pesky ads during all of the episodes and you would get the episode as soon as i get it recorded and edited the first people that get that episode are our patrons so head on over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing diy another way to support the show is to use coffee that's ko-fi forward slash DIY. also if you head on over to homebrewingdiy.beer there's a, a cool little floating widget there now that will access to coffee and that's one-time support so all you have to do is uh, support us that way i have some new supporters on coffee as well that i'd like to thank I, i'd like to thank dominic dominic you've, you've given on coffee multiple times and just once again thank you so so much for your support also, Terry, a first time supporter, thank you so much for your support for your one time donation over at Coffee. And last, I'd like to thank Gordon for his donation of the support of a homebrewing DIY. Support from all of our listeners is something that helps the show come to you. And just so you know, like I said, I have a day job, all of the money we use for homebrewing diy is 100 percent reinvested into the show Uh, i'll give you an example right now the money i have in the account is actually going to getting chino who's our one of our newer contributors we're getting him a podcast set up so that he could be on the show more more often and even possibly step in and host an episode here and there so pretty exciting um same with ryan pack we're getting them podcast set up so that they can you know be on the show more sound great and in not kind of hodgepodge some things together from you know uh, for example they're not they're not trying to do a podcast on their airpods it, it it's easier on your ears and also easier for me to edit. but those are the type of things that your support goes into in helping grow the show so thank you to all of our supporters at coffee and patreon another way to support the show is head on over to our website homebrewingdiy.beer and you can click on our sponsor banners we have Adventures in Homebrewing and Brewfather over there and clicking on those banners is not going to change your prices in any way, but what it does do is it supports the show because they know that we sent you. So thank you so much to all of those who have clicked on those banners and supported the show that way. And of course the last way to support the show is to write us a review so you can head on over to Apple Podcasts or Podchaser.com and leave us a five-star review. Those reviews are Always, always going to help others find this show. I, I guess now is a good time for us to dive into this week's topic where we're going to talk and do a deep dive into the evolution of homebrewing. Now, I'd like to talk a bit about homebrewing as a hobby uh, this is a episode that i've wanted to do for a while and really what kind of gave me the idea is obviously it's been a long pandemic and i've spent way more time surfing the internet than i probably should have just because i, I think in general we've all been stuck at home it we're, we're getting close to the end and i'm super excited about it right we're my wife specifically, she's getting vaccinated on Friday and I'm pretty close to actually getting my vaccination. And so we're kind of, at least for the adults in our lives, getting pretty close to getting people to where life's going to start to get back to normal. I'd say once we get in rolling into fully into summer, you're going to start to see things coming back the way that they used to be. And it's, it's definitely been a long year. That being said, I am actually looking forward to taking, obviously, I'll still put out this podcast, but I am looking forward to kind of taking a break from being online all the time and for all my events and to seeing people in person and to having homebrew club meetings again with everybody in person. And I'm really looking forward to just having my friends over with a full keezer and just hanging out and drinking some beers I, I i gotta admit i i can't wait until that day comes it's it's going to be a pretty pretty amazing day but for today's deep dive what i want to talk about is just the evolution of home brewing as a hobby it's it's a very different hobby from when i brewed my first batch all the way back in 1998. now i want to be very clear 1998 was the first time I ever brewed, and at that time, home brewing was a very, very different hobby. and And things are just not really, if you think about just the approach to beer in general, it's really evolved into something new. and, and I th- I'm going to leave it up to you to say to yourself whether it's better or not. But for me, I personally think it, it, it's better today than it was, you know, twenty three years ago and then even further back if you get to the home you talk to home old homebrewers who've been homebrewing since the 80s and the 70s and the 60s they're going to tell you hey homebrewing is a completely different game from back in those days just for the sheer availability of ingredients but we're i'm going to start from the evolution of homebrewing from when i started homebrewing which was in the late 90s all the way until today which is you know spring early spring of 2021 so let's start first with what what was the homebrew scene like back in the 90s in in the late 90s and uh, let's my when i was starting off homebrewing in the late 90s it was i i started with extract and and my first batch was extract and it was a cooper's can uh, a, a pre-wart hopped Coopers can you've probably heard if you've listened to every episode of this podcast you've probably heard me talk about this I it was given to me as a gift it was it was called IPA bitter so it was a it was an English style IPA and it came in a can that was pre-wart pre-hopped wort that was basically extract. And all you had to do was add water to it, boil it. You didn't have to add hops or anything. So you could boil it for about 10 or 15 minutes just to sterilize it. And then you had to move it into a carboy and you, and you then fermented it, right? And then once you fermented it back in those days, in the instructions, it talked about doing a secondary and you would take your beer and you would get, let it go through that first fermentation, and then you would rack the beer off into another carboy. Or if you fermented in a five-gallon bucket, you would move it into a glass carboy at that point, And you would let it sit for another week or two in what they called secondary fermentation. And in all reality, what this stage was done for in the 90s was to just try to get your beer to clarify it a little bit more. You're sitting on a yeast cake. You've got a lot of fermentation kind of floating in there. And people would move it over to the secondary, let it sit in your basement and let it sit there and kind of settle out and you would have a much much smaller yeast cake that you would then rack your beer again into your bottling bucket and you would move into the bottling phase now absolutely in the late 90s people were totally kegging the same way we keg today uh five gallon cans using using old soda cans, all of that was totally happening in the late nineties. So that's a very, very similar situation as to what people are using for today. But when it came to the actual brewing process, there were a lot of things different. Uh, So in fermentation, A big thing in in that time of my early homebrewing days was that secondary fermentation, and that was a stage that a lot of people used. Now, let's reel it back into today. Almost no one I talk to does secondary fermentations, and in all reality, it's almost in some circles frowned upon to do a secondary fermentation because it's another place for oxygen exposure and possible contamination risks, and... So we, we've we now gone from, hey, we want to get it off the yeast and not let it sit on the yeast. That was also a big dogmatic thing of homebrewers, I think, in the late 90s, was people saying that you don't want homebrew to sit on yeast for too long. And in all reality, nobody even thinks that way anymore, at least in my circles uh, of talking about letting beer sit on yeast for uh, too long of time even to the fact of there are some people in my homebrewing circles that when they logger beer, they logger beer on yeast as part of their loggering process for getting a more authentic German flavor. So that, that would be one example. So that that's really kind of one of those dogmatic things of homebrewing in the late nineties. When I started that people always talked about like, Hey, you want to get it off the yeast. You want to get it to settle down. This is how you're going to get really clear beer. And it's just something that a lot of home brewers don't do today. So I, I I would say the biggest evolution from the fermentation side when it comes to process is the fact that most people aren't doing secondary fermentations anymore. And that's just really something you don't see a lot of in homebrewing today. So first thing we'll check off the list is the secondary fermentation. That has evolved into something else. I would say the number one thing it's involved into in modern home brewing is probably a cold crash. And I'll, I'll admit for me, cold crashing was a game changer. And, and I found it on forums. I I brewed a few batches of beer at this time in my... I, so the, the story of my brewing is I brewed a few batches of beer in the late 90s. And then I had a pretty long hiatus through the early 2000s. Come to the late aughts and in around 2010 I started homebrewing again right and so at that process what had changed is a, a lot had changed and and specifically to the secondary fermentation process people had started to do a lot less of secondary fermentations people started to cold crash so Cold crashing is the process of you you finish your fermentation and if you have a fridge that you can throw your beer into uh, that's already fully fermented out, you're going to get it to settle a lot faster, get all of the proteins and the floating yeast to settle down to a cake at the bottom. If you can keep it in cold storage and... and it, that cold storage is going to help that yeast settle out and and also all of the proteins and give you a nice thick dense yeast cake and i gotta be honest a cold crash when you when you think of the difference between yeast cakes of a cold crashed beer versus a beer that you rack into secondary or you just give enough time to settle out a cold crash yeast cake is just thicker more dense it doesn't really move a lot and When you're racking it off, you're just less likely to get stuff in there because it's just cold and more dense. I guess that's the best way to explain it. And so for me, I felt from the first time ever cold crashing, this is the way it was going to go. Now, there are some aspects of cold crashing that are very, very like some kind of things you got to watch out for, right? Obviously, if you're cold crashing your beer, you want to we want to talk about cold side oxidation risk and and suck back and there's all kinds of hacks out there we've talked about them multiple times on the show like the balloon hack where you you fill up a balloon and suck it back suck the co2 back in through a balloon or what what I like to do is I I like to actually have there's there's setups where you have like a keg going into a keg and it sucks the co2 from another keg there's just so many different ways on the uh, to to make it so that you don't have those oxygen issues with the cold crash but in all reality cold crashing to me is truly the way to go when you're talking about trying to clarify your beer quickly and to do so in a way that I think is just going to give you a better experience than running a secondary. I I feel like I actually get better beer from cold crashing than I do from doing a secondary fermentation. This is something that has evolved from the early dogmatic homebrewing days to now it's 2021 and things have just definitely changed. The other big evolution I want to talk about is definitely that the oxidation piece that i just mentioned it's one of those things that back in the 90s everybody talked about obviously uh, people did talk about oxygen but it wasn't talked about with such it wasn't so extreme as it is today and it was more of like don't splash your bucket around when you're bottling or try not to get too much oxygen into it while while you're moving it from from your 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 fermenter into a keg, right? These were people weren't it was very uncommon to have somebody have a closed system when racking from a fermenter into a keg, for example, uh, you know, 20 years ago. And now cold side oxidation I would say is probably one of the number one things that I hear about when it comes from new homebrewers or brewing advice given to new homebrewers or people just in general trying to say what can I do to improve my beer everybody talks about oxygen hey limit the amount of oxygen and try to limit it as much as possible uh, heck you were if you've listened to this podcast just a couple episodes, we were talking to Brandon Caps about hazy IPAs, and he was talking about the minuscule amount of oxygen that he tries to keep out of his hazy IPAs is to where if he even had 200 parts per million, it would ruin his beer and it would be a whole tragedy and they would dump the batch, right? And these are all things that 20 years ago... Even at the microbrewery level, you didn't really hear so much about this kind of oxygen exposure. Now, professional brewers have known about oxygen and it having an effect on on shelf stability and the and effects on beer for years and years and years. But at the homebrew level, people just didn't pay as much mind to it because you, you didn't really have the, some of the technologies that we have today. And people had also just not really come up with those types of processes. So, I'm going to say the the efforts that people make to keep oxygen out of beer were just something that people did a lot less of. I also think that one of the 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 big pieces is the advent of IPAs as a, as a in general as a beer style and being such an American style of beer that IPAs have also kind of driven the oxygen piece because people have have And you find out early, even in the big bitter bombs of the West Coast IPA, is that oxygen has an effect on those, even those bitter beers because if you get oxygen on the cold side, you would start to lose bitterness quickly. And with the hazy IPAs that are... All late edition hops and, and large dry hops, you start to really see oxygen have effects on those beers. I have definitely seen many purple uh, hazy IPAs, specifically when I've had friends that have come and bottled me one. If I drink it that day, it's usually pretty, it's usually fine. But if I if I try to keep it for a couple of weeks and it's a, it's been a bottled hazy IPA just off of somebody's tap. I find that they turn purple pretty quickly and, and that's a direct effect from oxygen and really a great way to kind of show somebody that oxygen does have an effect of beer and specifically on shelf stability. And, and I think that that is something that I think about when I deal with beer today is cold side oxygen. And I also think that, you know, as we know, oxygen definitely has an effect on flavor it, it, it's considered an off flavor that cardboard or the the that wet cardboard flavor that people talk about that that's usually direct directly attributed to oxygen. Also, you you get a lot of people that when you go into competition that are super sensitive to oxygen and, and they can call you out on it. So to me, cold side oxygen is definitely something that I make an effort to try and call me a bit dogmatic but i also think that there's there's definitely some proven science there that says that oxygen does have an effect on beer and and especially if you look at it over time so that that's you know that that's my opinion and and uh, the opinion of a lot of homebrewers today and i think that it's a good thing that it's a focus today not so much a focus you know 20 22 years ago obviously they did talk about oxygen but it wasn't to the level that it is today I also think that one thing that's really evolved from when I started home brewing from from my early days to today is there's just a big difference in how people all grain brew, right So for example, when I first started home brewing, when people were building out their systems, this was actually right around when batch sparging had had become kind of a thing and was starting to kind of kind of, Par- parches head but even then before that people were trying to recreate commercial breweries in their home when they were going all grain so most all all grain setups it, when i first started were generally three vessel setups with a hot liquor tank uh, a mash ton and then uh, and then uh and then they would sparge over the mash ton into the into the boil kettle i remember the first all grain batch that i did with my roommates and back in 1998 we had this like sprinkler sparge arm that would that would spin around as you brought from the hot liquor tank into your mash tun and then that was how we would mash and then sparge into in and then you would like do your first runnings right into your kettle and 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 there's still tons of brewers that brew three vessel that's there's nothing wrong with that There absolutely nothing wrong with that and there's benefits i think in all different setups right uh, i think that like if you want really really clear beer having a three vessel system i think is going to help you at least on the hot side for clarity though i do say there's a what's the word there there's it's it's it, it's a little dogmatic there right but the idea is that there's there there are, there are certain people that believe in it and still brew that way and that's the way they're going to brew and kudos there's nothing wrong with it but when we talk about common ways that people brew there's that evolution in the aughts where people really got into batch sparging and that's where you know you used like a cooler mash ton and you would mash into it. You would do your runnings off through like a bazooka tube or the, bra- the the stainless steel braided tube that came out. Or even now, people mash in a bag and do batch sparges that way. And then you would still sparge into it, fill the water up to basically rinse your grain straight into the mash and, and it would be heated at let's say one seventy and then you would fill up your 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 sparge and then stir the hell out of it and then run it off again right? That that's the batch sparging method. And it's a great method. It it works really well. Heck, uh, my neighbor uh, across the street when he first moved in and and we were like, Oh, you homebrew. And we all started like, you know, becoming the cool dudes that we are today talking about homebrew with each other. You know, he was a batch sparge guy. Right. And then in the late aughts and, and really, at least for the United States and in the early aughts, for australia is where brew in a bag really started to become a thing people started to realize that hey this batch sparge thing in all reality couldn't you just kind of put a it, it kind of moved from that batch sparge to people just kind of doing these full volume you know one kettle brew in a bag systems and brew in a bag at this point i think is the most common all grain method out there and definitely the most common that you're going to see when it comes to new homebrewers just because the access to it is so much lower like you don't have to it doesn't cost a thousand dollars in expensive equipment to get into all grain it's it's basically oh hey i've already got a boil kettle and you know based on this i could go to brew in a bag very very easily brew in a bag works great for one gallon batches it works great for three gallon batches Uh, i'll give you an example the old brewing TV episodes back in the day when I was getting back into it, I watched a ton of brewing TV from Northern Brewer. And they even talked about brewing a bag as it was the new thing and it's kind of cool. But you know, it's only gonna work for a three-gallon batch and 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 if you were going anything bigger, still go back to batch sparging or doing a three-vessel system. And and now it's 2021 and the a five gallon brew in a bag batch is super common. Uh, it's super common to do a brew in a bag batch. Of, I've, I've, my neighbors do ten gallon brew in a bag batches, and there. And if you go to the brew bag, there's entire brew, nano breweries that are doing brew in a bag, and that's their entire method. And so that has pretty much been proven wrong. That brew in a bag can be generally done at any size as long as you can lift the bag out and it can handle the weight. You can brew in a bag, and so. It, it it we are now to a place where i think that brew in a bag has become really the number one way to get somebody into all grain brewing and people even tweak their systems from there into whatever their their brew in a bag system looks like and so i i i, I want to say that brew in a bag is definitely Definitely made homebrewing a lot more accessible, specifically all-grain homebrewing, a lot more accessible to newer homebrewers, and that's a that's a good thing. It's good for the hobby, and it's just good in general. When I started brewing a bag there were still people out there that said brew in a bag is an all grain brewing. Like, and that would be a a term that nobody would even use today. So just to kind of put that in perspective. So that's an evolution, at least in the brewing methods to where we are today. And then now we're seeing another evolution, you know, brew in a bag is still a thing. Absolutely. But we're now moving to these all in one brewing systems. And it started off with things like the Pico brew and Pico brew, Great product. Sucks that the company's not around. I, I, they gave it a good, good go, and they were doing a all-in-one. It's basically it was like think of it as like Keurig for home brewing, right? They had these Pico packs. You could buy them. In a Pico Pack, you literally just put water in it, and you 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 shoved your Pico Pack in, and it went through the whole brewing process, and then you added the yeast to it, and it all like fermented in it. It was like a whole thing. Uh, the Pico Brew was kind of a cool thing. I, I watched it like appear. I watched all of the homebrewing gurus out there that do podcasts and everybody who's in the homebrewing world all you know, get sponsored by Pico brew and push the Pico brew. Oh man, I love my Pico brew. And then all of a sudden it's just disappeared. Right. And I think that the, I personally think that the Pico brew had something right where I do think that home brewers want that all in one brewing system. But I, I think that the thing that the kind of killed it was the Pico pack. I, I also think that people still want the flexibility of what they want to do for their recipes and don't get me wrong, the Pico packs were cool in that you could, you know, kind of get your own recipes in them, I believe. I, I've never actually used one, but but the idea is that when I think about a homebrewer, half of the fun is making a recipe. Half of the fun is the artistic side of homebrewing. It's it's like where science and cooking and art all mix. And so I just I feel like it was a little too trying to it was trying to simplify it a little bit more than what a homebrewer is trying to do. But then when we look at the all-in-one brewing systems that have taken off, it's things like the Grainfather, right? And in comparison, the Grainfather, in comparison to a Pico brew, was very inexpensive, right? We we think of the all-grain systems now, such as the Mash and Boil or the Bruzilla and the, the Chinese knockoff ones that are like 150 bucks. There you can get a, an all-in-one brewing system for st- stupid cheap right now. But at the time, it was you know, 1500 to $2,000 for a Pico brew with Pico packs, or it was 800 bucks for a brew father. A brew father was going to come in all day. And, and brew father took the idea of brewing a bag in a way um, and brought it into, you know, a full-on brew, brewing system, though it, it isn't fully brewing a bag. You still had to boil some water on the side, and, and and they asked that you that you sparge the water as part of the process. But the idea is that if you use a, a brew father or a mash and boil or a brewzilla the way they're intended to be used it's a kind of hybrid between like batch sparging and 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 brew in a bag it's kind of a a cool little setup Uh, then now they've added pumps to them they've added still tops to them so you can distill from them they've all become an entire ecosystem in themselves and these things are cool, right? They they make brewing more accessible to more brewers, and they make electric brewing more accessible to more homebrewers. And I think that that's a good thing. So when we look at the when we look at the entire process of home brewing from the 90s to today, just the brewing process, it's very very different. I also think that you know the styles of beer. Obviously, we know that that's changed. in In the late 90s, when I started brewing, pale ales were all the rage. You know, if you if you if you were drinking things like a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, that was the cool beer. That was the cool hoppy beer to have. Uh, people did do IPAs, but IPAs were still kind of a a thing, and they were still kind of driven off of British beers, though. At the time, they were start the the West Coast style was starting to come and become a thing it was just in its early infancy. But, you know, IPAs were nothing like they were. They weren't even close to the giant bitter bombs of 100 IBUs as they were in the, like, late uh, aughts and early teens of uh, the 2000s, right? It hadn't really come into its own style yet. It was still that derivative from the British style of an IPA. Uh, Beers then were also malt-driven. I would say in the late 90s, the cool beer to have was an Amber Ale, I want you to, if you're listening to this podcast right now, think to yourself, when was the last time you sat down and ordered Amber Ale? There, there there's still some great ones out there. I think Bell's makes an amazing Amber Ale, but, but the idea is that it's just not a beer that a lot of people drink. Uh, Brown Ales were also big beers then. Uh, Porter's obviously were, were great beers in those times. It was all these like multi-driven beers and, and those were the beers that were, that were people wanted. They, they had some, some hop backbone to them but but they were still showcasing the malt and and malt forward beers were a thing right then the evolution of beer styles moves in at least in the united states then moves into the the bitter ipas right and we get into those west coast style clear ipas with lots of crystal malts and and really hoppy pale ales and and it's bitter lots of bittering hops and and bittering hops throughout the entire boil with some dry hopping but it was all about getting as bitter as you can we want to crank up the ibus that that became a whole thing and then we we went into iterations of different ipas right the black ipa and the red ipa and if you go look at the 2015 bjcp style guidelines you'll see all of the relics of all of the different ipas at the time you know going through all of that process and then Come the mid-teens is really when the hazy IPA starts to become a thing, right? Breweries in the East Coast were were already making them in the early teens. Think like Hetty Topper, they they were being made long before, and I think that that's probably the beer that hazy IPAs are originally kind of driven from, but even then it's now become its own style and these different hop combinations and it's very very different than a, a west coast ipa yes they both have the word ipa in them but they are so so different they're you know it's it's all about late addition if not any addition hops in the boil and and really large high dry hops and it's all about things like getting uh, like like using London yeast-driven flavors like London ale yeast and using uh, wheat and oats and all of that. It's just completely different than what you were getting if you were making an IPA back in 2010. They're just very, very different things. And, and, and all of these styles have evolved. And it's funny when you think about the sought-after beers now, it is... Hazy IPAs, barrel aged stouts, and really just barrel aged beers in general. Sour beers had a, a little stint in there, and they've, and, and there's still some very, very well loved and, and, and sought after sour breweries, but it's, yeah, sour beer has become a very, very different thing. And so it, it's, it's fun to see the, iterations of, of beer and all of these new styles and how they've changed along with brewing and how, how brewing in general has evolved as well as homebrewing. So it, it's, it's kind of cool to see those evolutions. The last thing I want to talk about is when it, when it comes to yeast and, and the things that people are looking for in beers and, and th- there's an entire section of homebrewing that has really changed there as well. It used to be when I first started homebrewing, it, it was obviously dry yeast was, was, uh, the, the, the fermentus SO5 was probably, and, and probably still to this day is, is the number one used yeast in making homebrewed beer. In the world, I would say that that's probably a pretty safe dis- assumption, and it's a clean yeast that gets out of the way. It has, it's meant to be a yeast that doesn't really add any flavors to your beer, right? And and that that could be a great thing. I'm making a pale ale. I want the yeast out of the way. I'm making a I'm making a a a blonde ale. I want the yeast out of the way. That that's it's a great beer a great yeast for those types of beers. But in all reality, the amount of yeast that's available to us now in comparison to 20 years ago and just ingredients in general are just very different. It used to be that you would go into a homebrew shop and you might have, if you went into a really good one, they might have a decent selection of different types of malts. And now when you walk into a homebrew shop and and I'll give you an example, my local homebrew shop has probably a hundred different types of malt that i could choose from and that's very very common in homebrew shots now and we're talking all kinds of specialty malts down to different countries that they can come from down to uh, i have options of different types of rye from the whole color spectrum down to it being flaked rye to 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 chocolate rye. Right? And and there's just so many different types of of wheat and different types of of barley. We just have so many options of really amazing ingredients that we just didn't have access to, and I think that that is the part that's really made home brewing an amazing hobby to have. There there's just so many beers that you can make. There's just so many things you can do with all of these ingredients and and just make something special. And and for me, that, that that's that's the coolest part. That's the coolest part about homebrewing. That that's what makes this hobby so amazing, is that you're now in a place where you have the entire world at your fingertips. You could if you're into making fermented beverages, you can make beer, you can make wine, you can make mead, you can make sake and whatever it is you want to make, right? Uh, makali, which is a, a Korean rice wine, right? It's like a cloudy Korean ri- rice wine. I, I, I've i seen so many people making these different types of ve- beverages out there. And there's just the, the sky's the limit when it comes to making fermented alcoholic beverages that you want to experiment with. It, it's just, it, I almost feel like, you know, right now, and and for the last, I would say, decade has really just been a golden age of homebrewing, at least in the United States, and things have just evolved into a wonderful place. Uh, I also think that the things that we focus on are obviously a little... Are, are a lot different than the things we focused on 20 years ago but in the end i think it's a good thing and it, and it, it's a, it's a snapshot into this time and when we look 20 years from now the things homebrewers are going to focus on are going to be different and and that's okay and you know maybe they'll have different ways that they look at oxygen and maybe they'll have different ways that they look at secondary fermentations or, or whatever it is. There's there's, they're just going to be different things. But the cool part is, is that I think that when it comes to the, the homebrewing hobby is that, and this is just my total way of looking at all this is there's, there's no wrong way to do anything. There's just, Hey, you're gonna do it your way. And if you make good beer, that's all that matters in the end. So, you know, listening to this, I am talking about the evolution and 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 I'm talking in generalities, but in all reality, if you still do a three fermentation vessel with secondary every single batch and you 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 brew in the traditional way people did in the nineties or the eighties, good on you. If you make great beer, wonderful. I'd love to have a beer with you. But I'm also not going to poo-poo the guy who does a brew in a bag with a cold crash um, in an oxygen-free cold side environment with everything super temp controlled with computers and all kinds of stuff and tries to take shortcuts all the way down to getting a beer done in seven days, grain to glass, boom. And as long as it's a good beer, that's all that matters. And so in the end, no matter what evolution beer is going to take, it's going to end up becoming a wonderful beverage that we're all going to share with our friends. So love to hear from anyone else out there of how homebrewing has changed over time for you. I, I know that when we talk about the people who listen to this podcast, it, it's all over the spectrum from from early beginners all the way to f- seasoned vets that have been brewing longer than I've ever brewed. And, and I appreciate all that have listened to me. So you know, if you're still with me, I'd I'd love some feedback, uh, and I'd love to read it in our next episode about you know how has your home brewing evolved over time, and what, what what does home brewing look like to you that is very different from from your beginning roots to the way it is today? I, I think that's a wonderful conversation to have because it also helps us look back on the hobby and see where we started and where we've become, and it might help us see where we're going. and that, that's a great thing to think about when we think about the homebrewing hobby. So uh, love to get that feedback. And uh, yeah, and speaking of feedback, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll hop into it. Thanks. All right, we're back with feedback. And I'm going to just dive into our first one. And our first one's from Terry Jeffress. And Terry writes, Hello from Salt Lake City. I have a show suggestion. Adjustments for high altitude brewing. I know the hops utilization and keg carbonation require adjustments because of higher altitude. But what does altitude actually affect? I, I've set my altitude in Brewfather for hops utilization, and it seemed to get pretty good results. But carbonation seems to be eluding me. I have slightly elevated my serving pressure to maintain a better carbonation, but it just seems to get a little bit undercarbed regards, Terry PS, my brewing history starts relatively similar to yours. I bought my first kits from the beer nut two extract kits, Porter and the Amber ale and jumped into an all grain batch uh, on number three and kegging on batch number six. So uh, Terry, thank you so much for the feedback. And yeah, I I think that I should do a show on high altitude brewing to be honest, I don't do many adjustments for altitude, and I'm actually a 1,000 feet higher in elevation than you are in Salt Lake. Salt Lake's at around 4,300 feet, and I'm at about 5,300 feet. The number one thing I know that altitude affects when it comes to hop utilization is the fact that you just boil at a lower temperature. Uh, the standard boiling rate for sea levels is around 210 degrees. My water boils here at around 201 200 so it's it's about a 10 degree difference in in the boil where water starts to boil and you never get above that temperature i have never been above 202 in any of my in on any of my thermometers up here in colorado so it's definitely got an effect on your hop utilization i do know that you got to up the hops just a little bit to kind of factor in the fact that you're boiling at a lower temperature but it's pretty slight i i've never really seen much of an effect as far as uh with carbonation goes i do know that there's an effect on how Altitude and carbonation, and that might be a good question for somebody like Chino, who's a contributor, or Ryan Packmeyer to answer. And and I'll definitely make sure that th- this is a subject that we tackle when we talk about high altitude brewing, because hey, I live in a high altitude area, and I also. I mean, Colorado, we definitely have towns that are above 10,000 feet here or or close to 10,000 feet that have great breweries, like uh, Outer Range is up in uh, Frisco, which is around 10,000 feet. I think it's like 9,800 feet or something like that. And so they definitely have to do something to adjust for high altitude, and and I'd love to hear more about that. So I think that's a great show suggestion and, and great feedback. So thank you so much, Terry. And then I got another piece of feedback, and I actually got this from Chino, uh, who's a contributor here at homebrewing diy he he loves to write me letters about my episodes because he does listen to the podcast and and it's 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 awesome to get his notes on a couple of things and this is a really good one so i wanted to make sure i read it he sent me an email where he's like hey i was listening to episode 75 with kevin brooks barrel aged stout and it sounds like the beer was a treat but there's a couple of observations on a technical note for listeners kevin mentioned that he had an issue bottle conditioning one of his barrel aged stouts there are two things going on when bottle and conditioning barrel aged stouts first you or ryan touched on the need to re-yeast which can be the case for a really long-aged beer um, it may in it, it may not in some ways be necessary but re-yeasting is an insurance policy and may reduce carbonation uh, and and it could reduce the carbonation time But the second issue is a big one. Priming sugar calculators assume that your beer is already partly carbonated from fermentation. So about 0.8 volumes of freshly fermented beer that hasn't exceeded the around 70 degrees Fahrenheit that has that hasn't exceeded around 70 degrees Fahrenheit after bubbling is slowed down but barrel aged beers can go flat and priming sugar calculators doesn't ask to, for that info for compensation that is actually a good point out because yes they're, they're, they there they do assume that there's a little bit of carbonation because they assume that you're just going to finish it and move it they don't assume that you've been aging it in a barrel so there's definitely a factor in there um And and we are planning on eventually putting a tool on the website where we are going to talk about things like bottle conditioning age beers and, and having a priming sugar calculator. We're, we're actually in the process of building out a ton of different calculators for the website. So that homebrewing DIY in general can be a resource for you. If you would like to look at different calculators that, that you know are right then in there, uh, I'll give you, I, I have certain calculators that I use on spreadsheets and I'd love to get them on the website just so that we can get them used. Um, so Keep an eye out for those. Next, he said the best examples of beer in the world are the best home brews. Even shining commercial examples in a style rarely score more than a 45 on a 50 point BJCP scale, scored by master judges and sometimes lower. But the same judges might hand out. A several high scores in a big homebrew competition so another reason to love the hobby and I, I agree and one of the things that we talk about in our homebrew beer chef challenges is that you know we do put them up against commercial examples and every time i talk to somebody i say hey we're gonna put it up against this commercial example every homebrewer that sends it to me is like oh i don't know if i'm gonna beat that beer but the thing is is I'm in total agreement with Chino here in the fact that I think that homebrewed beers can be, and in, in a lot of instances, are better than a lot of commercial beers. Don't get me wrong. There are some amazing commercial beers out there that are highly sought after. But if you're a really good homebrewer and you've taken a lot of time and attention and care in a very small batch of beer that's a lot easier to manage than a large batch of beer... I think that it, 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 in some ways you can actually produce beers that are as good, if not better, than a lot of the commercial examples. And, and he does point out that you know commercial examples rarely get above a 45, and there are people out there that have had a 50 handed out to him in competition for a homebrewed beer. So think about that. When, you, when, when you're when uh, when you thinking about, hey, does my beer hold up to commercial? I've definitely made some beers that I love a lot more than the commercial examples. And that's in my own personal brewery. And I hope that that's the case for you because that, that's something I truly, truly believe in when it comes to beers. So uh, yeah. So uh, that's what I have this week for feedback. And I want to thank everyone who sends in feedback. It's super appreciated. You can always send feedback to, podcast at homebrewingdiy.beer that's uh, podcast at homebrewingdiy.beer that's that email goes to to directly to me and then another way you can submit feedback is to head to homebrewingdiy.beer our website if you go to the contact page just fill out the form and then it's going to send an email to podcast at homebrewingdiy.beer so either way i get it uh, another way you can send me Feedback is just hit me up on my social media. If you head over to Homebrewing DIY on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm also on Reddit. You'll see my posts on, on the homebrewing forum. I do post the podcast there. And and you can always message me feedback there. And, and I'm always glad to read it from other channels than just an email. So just let you know. Uh, if, if I get feedback that I think is uh, that that is valid and, and good feedback. I, I'd love to make sure that we get it read on the show. And so thank you very much for those who do. Well, let's, let's wrap this puppy up. Mm-hmm. to thank everyone who stuck with me this far to listen to the outro it makes me real happy that uh, you stuck around and I had a great time talking about the evolution of the homebrewing hobby at least in my eyes and uh, it was a fun conversation that I'm having with all of you well that's it for this week and we'll talk to you next week on homebrewing DIY